Good afternoon, everyone. Today I want to discuss faith and healing. The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. So we see that John expressed a desire that we might enjoy health and prosperity. God tells us that he wants us to enjoy life abundantly. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, John 10 and verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. To be able to enjoy life to the fullest extent possible requires good health. So we might ask, why then is there sickness? Why is there poor health and death? Why do we, including the faithful, get sick? Why is it that we get sick? Why is it faithful people, people who believe in God, who obey God, who have faith in God? Why do such people get sick? And there are many faithful men and women in the Bible who became sick, as the Bible records. There have been, as long as there has been, a church of God, faithful members who were nevertheless sick. And there are many faithful members of the church of God today who are sick. Despite these facts, there have been in the past and probably are today a number of people in the church who assume that if a person has faith, either he won't get sick or if he or she does get sick, the person will be more or less immediately healed if he or she has enough faith, has enough faith, not just faith, but enough faith. The truth is quite the opposite. There's no truth to this idea that if a person gets sick, a person of faith gets sick, that person will automatically be immediately healed if he or she has enough faith as soon as the person prays or is anointed and prayed for that that person will get well. But that is a has been, at least in the past and probably is to some extent still today, a common idea. In previous sermons, I've discussed several major factors behind disease, and I've discussed as major factors behind disease the following causes. Number one, the law of entropy, which is one of the most basic fundamental laws of the universe. You could call it the law of entropy. I call it the law of universal decay. Amounts to the same thing. What that means is that everything in the universe, everything physical is decaying. The universe itself is decaying. And we were made mortal with bodies subject to infirmity, sickness, and death. We were made that way. We were made with bodies that are subject to decay, that are corruptible. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians concerning the corruption of the flesh that we have in this life in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 42. So also, Paul wrote, is the resurrection of the dead. The body, that means the physical body, is sown in corruption. It's talking about one who dies and is buried. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Notice here that it is sown in corruption or decay. 
it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And so our bodies are corruptible and they are weak. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We are physical by nature. The flesh that we have is of the nature of the world. And it is governed by natural laws. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And that's speaking of what he became after he was resurrected. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, as speaking of Adam, made of dust, made of the dust of the earth. So also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. The dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed for this corruptible the condition we're in now in this flesh must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Mortal means you can die. You're subject to death. Immortal means you're not subject to death. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, then shall be brought to pass the saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What this tells us is that until we no longer have corruptible bodies, that is, bodies subject to decay, we will be subject to disease and death because we're made of flesh, we're made of the dust of the earth, and we are by nature subject to the corruption of disease and death. That is the primary reason why we get sick. A second reason we may get sick in some cases is because sometimes God allows sickness so that he may be glorified and man humbled for the purpose that ultimately we might be drawn closer to God. Now I won't go into detail backing this up with scripture, but you can look at Job as an example of this cause for sickness. And there are other examples in the scripture as well. Third, another reason we have sickness is because of disregard for God's word through ignorance, neglect, or downright rebellion. In the Bible are many principles and laws that have a bearing on health and disease. God created natural laws that govern his creation. And if we ignore and break those laws that leads to disease through natural causes or in some cases the disease can be a result of curses sent directly from God due to rebellion and there are examples of that in scripture as well 
I won't go into detail, but there are several examples in the Bible of disease sent because of rebellion. And one could find many examples of people getting sick because of neglect or ignorance of laws relating to health, such as cleanliness and sanitary practices, along with a number, a number of others. During the era of the Black Death, as it was called, or the, the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, which swept over the world, especially uh, through Asia and, and Europe, in parts of Africa as well, and I think it's still endemic even now in, in some places in Africa and other places. Actually, there are cases in the United States occasionally. But during the time of the epidemic, when it was sweeping over the earth in the Middle Ages, Jewish communities suffered much lower death rates than others because they followed certain biblical laws of sanitation that were not generally followed by non-Jewish communities. The three reasons I've cited for sickness are major causes of sickness among human beings. And I don't necessarily say that's an exhaustive list of the causes, but virtually all sickness among humans is directly related to one or more of these causes in one way or another. So we might ask then, where does divine healing fit into the picture? As I alluded to earlier, the question of divine healing has been a subject of confusion and misunderstanding among many in the church of God. Unfortunately, at times, some ministers have led people to believe that the main reason that people are sick, if they're in the, in the church, if they are people of faith, is that, and especially if they're not healed of their sickness, is exclusively because they lack faith. If you're sick and you're prayed for and you're not healed, then it, it has to be because you lack faith. Some ministers have proclaimed that God promises to heal the sick and have suggested that to be healed, all one has to do is, quote, claim God's promise to heal. And if the person has faith, God is bound to heal him because of his promise to heal anyone who has sufficient faith. And so as a result, the concept have, has been fostered that people who have godly faith either will not get sick, or if they do get sick, they should be anointed and ask God for healing. And then if they have enough faith, they're soon healed. I've never heard anybody, anyone explain what enough faith is. How does one determine enough faith? I guess it's supposed to be by the results of the anointing and prayer. So over the years, we've had people who are sick call the minister they, as they've been instructed to do and ask for prayer and anointing. And they themselves pray for healing. And others in the church may pray for their healing as well. And yet quite often, probably in, in the majority of cases, they remain sick. Now there have been miraculous healings in the church. And I've not only experienced such healings myself, but I have witnessed others, and others have testified of healings that they witnessed, which could logically only be explained as a miracle. Those things do happen. There are many miracles, miraculous healings recorded in the Bible. But in the majority of cases where people become sick and they've been anointed, 
there are no miraculous healings. That's been my experience. And I've been in the church for about 50 years. Sometimes in that circumstance, a person will begin to experience mental anguish, thinking that God is punishing him for some secret sin that he may not be aware of, or thinking that his faith is not strong enough for God to heal him. Even though he may be genuinely striving to seek and obey God, and may in his conduct and other ways exhibit just as much faith as about anybody else. Others may conclude that since God promises to heal the sick and they ask for healing in faith and yet it was not forthcoming that God's word cannot be trusted. So they conclude that God does not keep his word. And I've known of some who have turned away from God altogether because they or a loved one was sick and prayers for healing seemingly availed nothing. So there have been some I've known personally who have turned away from the faith entirely because of this circumstance. Now, all of us ought to be growing in faith. Faith is a gift of the Spirit of God along with other gifts, and these are things we should be growing in. But... One thing we should not be doing is putting stumbling blocks in the way of people's faith by raising false expectations, by telling people something like, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed if you look to God for healing. The truth is the prayers of the faithful, the prayers on behalf of the faithful are being heard. Now, I want to qualify that last statement I made by saying that it is a false expectation to tell someone that they will be healed of this while they are still made of flesh. They may be healed, but there's no guarantee that anyone is going to be healed of a sickness while he is still a fleshly human being. And the truth is that the prayers of the faithful, the prayers on behalf of the faithful, are being heard. Even when nothing apparently happens in terms of healing. The truth is that every single one of the faithful will be healed. So it's not exercising futility to pray for healing. We ought to be praying for healing. But well, we must realize, too, that while everyone of the faith will be healed, he or she will not necessarily be healed immediately and not necessarily in this lifetime. I want to use two examples today to illustrate this point. The examples of, are of two men in the Bible who shared the same name. Their name was Lazarus. And I want to draw some lessons from the examples of these two men. The first example is found in John chapter 11, where we read, beginning with verse 1, John 11 and verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent 
to him, that is to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, uh, heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, the ones who were with him, he said, let us go to Judea again. Because uh, Lazarus was in Bethany, which is near, near uh, Jerusalem and Judea. Then skipping down to verse 11, he said, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. Now, this was before he left to go to Judea. He said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Notice they were thinking that he would get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And in many places in the Bible, death is likened to sleep. Now, Jesus had already said that this was not a, a sickness unto death, and yet Lazarus had died. So, is that a contradiction? Going on with the story, uh, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So we notice several things here. We notice that Lazarus was a man Jesus loved. He knew the family well. Lazarus was apparently a disciple of Jesus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And apparently then Lazarus was a man of faith. Now, we're not told how long it took to get the message to Jesus from Mary and Martha. I believe he was in Galilee at the time. It may have taken perhaps a day, maybe several days. At any rate, it did take some time. But when Jesus received the news, he did not rush right away to go to them. He waited two more days. He did not intervene immediately to heal Lazarus. He simply waited, and he allowed things to take their course, which resulted in Lazarus dying. Because by the time Jesus got around to going to Lazarus, it was too late to keep him from dying. And Jesus himself knew that when they finally began, his, uh, began the, the journey, he and his disciples, that Lazarus was already dead. And so in verse 17, it goes on to say, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is about to show them that he is the one through whom the resurrection at the last day will occur. The resurrection that they were looking forward to at the last day or the end of the age. He is about to show them that he is the one through whom that resurrection will occur. And he's saying that one who believes in him, in other words, a person of faith in God and in Jesus Christ, may get sick and die, like Lazarus had become sick and, die, sick and died. He is giving assurance that such a person who has faith will live again and will never die. That is, will never die once he has been made immortal through a resurrection to eternal life, which is mentioned many places in the Bible. Jesus allowed Lazarus to be sick and die, doing nothing to intervene to teach some important lessons about sickness, about disease, about death, about the resurrection. Going on to verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, that is with Mary, and comfort, comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now notice that, again, that Jesus had waited until Lazarus was dead before responding to his family's request for him to come to them. Having witnessed other healings, they assumed that if Jesus had been there, he would have healed Lazarus, and Lazarus would not have died. But Lazarus did die. Jesus was not there. Lazarus was not healed. And so the family was weeping. They were mourning the death of their loved one. Why did Jesus allow them to go through such an experience? The suffering, the death, the sorrow, the weeping. Why did he say to his disciples earlier, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe? What was it that Jesus wanted them to believe? Again, Jesus was using this experience to teach them and us a lesson about death and the resurrection. He was using it to teach them that he, Jesus Christ, has the power to raise the dead to life and that prayers for healing 
if they are not answered in a positive way in this lifetime, will be answered after a period of time, after a person of faith has died. Going on in verse 33, it says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now notice Jesus' compassion and his empathy for, the, for those experiencing this tragic event in their lives. God is not indifferent to human suffering. Nevertheless, God allows human suffering. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. This was a man Jesus knew well and that he loved, and he wept. He wept seeing the others weeping, and he was troubled at what he saw. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So that's the, that's the question. We have all kinds of, well, I say all kinds. We have a number of instances of miraculous healings recorded in the Bible. We're told that Jesus healed multitudes of people during his ministry. And so if someone is not healed, it's a logical question. If he's looking to God for healing, couldn't God, Jesus Christ, who opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying or this woman from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it, which was typical of burials in that area at the time. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who has died, who had died, came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. So it is through Jesus Christ, we're told, that the resurrection occurs and Jesus showed them that he has the power to raise the dead to life. That's why he allowed Lazarus to die at that particular time. The lesson for us is that if we believe, if we have faith, and if we continue in faith, we too will see the glory of God. We will witness and we will have part in the resurrection. Lazarus' resurrection at that time was to physical life because he died a natural death later. It was not 
time for him to be resurrected to immortality. But this was a resurrection to physical life as an example of God's power. Jesus spoke, however, in this context of another resurrection, the resurrection to eternal life. And the one, he said, who lives in that resurrection shall never die. It is, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, a resurrection where those so resurrected put on immortality. This is further illustrated in Luke 16 by another example, a parable involving a man named Lazarus. Interestingly, the name Lazarus means God will protect or God will comfort or God will aid. In fact, it means all of those things. It implies protection, comfort, aid, whatever is needed, God will provide. Now, you might think that's peculiar, a, a peculiar word, a name to be used in an instance where man became sick and died. And Jesus ignored for a time his family's pleas for him to come to them. But that's the name used in this parable. It's the name of the man we read earlier, we read about earlier in the book of John. In Luke 16, verse 19, we see this parable where Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now notice the situation here. A man named Lazarus was very poor and diseased. He was reduced to a state of helplessness. In such a star sorry state of helplessness, poverty, and disease, he died. But he was a man of faith. How do we know he was a man of faith? Because he is to be resurrected with Abraham, who will be resurrected in the last day, as Martha put it in the previous scripture we read. He's to be resurrected in the first resurrection mentioned in 1 Corinthians, where those resurrected at that time will be clothed with immortality. So he was a man of faith, despite his circumstances of extreme poverty and disease and death. Now, the details of this parable, some of which are confusing to many people, are explained in an article called Lazarus and the Rich Man, published on our website, cogmessenger.org. But we won't go into all of those questions and details today. It's not our purpose. For my purpose today, it's important to note that this Lazarus was reduced to abject poverty. His body was riddled with disease, and he was not healed in this lifetime, in this age, even though he was a man of faith. But he will be resurrected to eternal life with Abraham 
Abraham, who's now dead, but who will be in the first resurrection at the time Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Now, after the resurrection of Abraham and Lazarus and eventually the rich man, there's a conversation that goes on in this parable that this is all in the future. And in the parable, Abraham makes a statement to the rich man who is who will have been at that time resurrected to a different kind of resurrection, a physical resurrection, and who is then about to be punished with permanent death as he is cast into the lake of fire. And so we read in Luke 16, verse 24, Luke 16, verse 24, then he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in, or as it could be translated before, this flame. He was there in the vicinity of the lake of fire seeing his fate, and he was tormented by seeing what was going to happen to him. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now, this is an extremely important lesson for us. Any of us who think that being a Christian, being a person of faith, automatically means you're going to have everything in life go your way. You're going to always have all sorts of blessings, plenty to eat, little in the way of trouble, never getting sick, certainly not being poor or utterly destitute. Those things aren't supposed to happen to Christians, are they? At least that's the idea that many people have. Aren't Christians supposed to be blessed and have all kinds of good things, not evil things? Well, quite often they do, but... On the other hand, there are many examples where they don't have those things in this lifetime. And Lazarus is one of those examples. In his life, he endured evil things. Things that none of us in this room, at least, have endured. Now, there's no question that faith is often a factor in healing. But we need to understand that it is not the only factor. Sometimes the faith of a person who is physically healed in this age may not be a factor at all. I've known numerous individuals who were, judging by the fruits of their lives, very strong in faith, and yet who, when faced with sickness and death, were not healed. They, they remained sick in some cases for years before they died. Yet they were people of faith. I've also known of individuals who by every appearance were instantly and spectacularly healed when anointed and prayed for, and yet they had virtually no faith at all time, or, or at all, at the time of their healing. The Bible also recounts the healings of people who had no apparent faith of their own, as we will see. And yet faith is often a factor in healing, especially the ultimate healing. In Acts 14... Beginning with verse 8, it says, 
as Acts 14, verse 8, in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now this man's faith was evidently a factor in his healing. But what was the evidence of his faith? The evidence was simply that he had heard Paul preach and was open to believing what he had heard. He did not reject the preaching of the gospel, as had, had many others. And thus his faith, his willingness to believe the gospel message led to his healing. Later, after this spectacular healing, Paul was dragged out of the same city, Lystra, and stoned and left for dead. He, he wasn't dead, or either he was dead and he was resurrected, but he ultimately left. And then later on, we notice what happened in Acts 14, verse 21. Acts 14, verse 21, and when they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, these are cities in Asia Minor, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Notice he told them that they were to continue in the faith, but warning them that there would be many tribulations between them and the kingdom of God. So these same disciples, presumably including the one who had been healed in Lystra, were told to continue in the common faith. And they were warned that there would be many tribulations. And through the tribulations, they would enter the kingdom of God. Could sickness then be one of the tribulations that we may have to endure to enter the kingdom of God? Most of the people Jesus healed during his public ministry were not towering paragons of faith but they were ordinary people who had perhaps enough faith to ask for healing, but little more. We read in John 4, beginning with verse 48, John 4, verse 48, Jesus said to, uh, to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So, this doesn't indicate a huge amount of faith on the part of those people. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, in this case, the man, the nobleman, believed he had enough faith to ask Jesus to come and heal his son. And when Jesus told him his son lived, he believed his word. The word believed in the verse, verse 50 where it says he believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him. The uh, word translated believed in this verse is translated from the Greek word for belief or faith, which is the same word in either case, belief and faith 
are concepts that are basically the same, and they're included in the meaning of pistuo, which is the Greek word translated that he believed, and it is a verb in the arrowist tense. In the Greek, the arrowist tense generally indicates action at a point in time, and so it was not necessarily an abiding faith that is being described here. It simply means that at that particular moment, the man believed what Jesus had told him, namely that his son had been healed. But evidently there was still doubt in the man's mind because it was only later that his faith was made firm and he and his family became disciples only when the healing was confirmed by the testimony of his servants who were on the scene where the son was at the time of his healing. Going on in verse 51, it says, as he was now, now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Notice this miracle was a sign. Jesus had told them that unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And he was giving them signs and wonders. But it was only after the servants confirmed that the healing had indeed occurred as Jesus had said that the man and his family were totally convinced. So we see a couple of things here. We see that this man had a certain degree of faith, but it was not an overwhelming display of faith. We also see that this miracle was performed as a sign of Jesus' messiahship. That it was performed so that people would believe his message. Sometimes healings are performed simply as a testimony or a sign of God's power. And it's interesting that many people, even today, who are healed are people who don't have much faith, if any. Nevertheless, the healings are performed evidently as a testimony. Certainly, this was in the case of Jesus. Many of his miracles, they were a testimony to his power and the fact he was the Messiah. Sometimes during Jesus' ministry, people were healed because someone else had enough faith to bring them to Jesus or to ask for healing on their behalf, as it was in the case of this nobleman. He was asking for healing for his son. The son, we're not told anything about his faith, but it was the, the father who had the, the enough faith to ask for the son to be healed. We see another example of that in Matthew 8, beginning with verse 5, Matthew 8 and verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, 
A centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And when I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So here is a man, an example of a man who had a great deal of faith. But he wasn't asking for himself to be healed. He was asking for someone else to be healed. And so Jesus said to the centurion, go your way and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that same hour. Again, we see here that this example of a very strong faith, but sometimes people were healed, although their faith was not strong. In Mark 9, verse 17, Mark 9, verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation. Now here was Jesus going around healing multitudes of people, and yet he said it was a faithless generation. So obviously most of them were not being healed necessarily because of their faith. Faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell to the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, as Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice he said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And I dare say that even among those of us who believe, any of us could also utter the same words. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter into him no more. Then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, we also see that a lack of faith may be in some cases a reason for a lack of healing or miracles being wrought. Under certain circumstances in Mark 6 and verse 1, Mark 6 and verse 1, then he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him 
And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what, is, what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Notice they admitted that there were mighty works being performed, but they said, who is this guy? He, he's, he's one of our neighbors. He's, he's a guy from down the street. What right does he have to be going around healing people? And things like that. And so they were offended. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among, among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Jesus was constrained by the unbelief, blatant unbelief, the willing disbelief of the people there where he had grown up. So even though a lack of faith may be a hindrance to healing, why would we assume that someone who has faith enough to believe the gospel and obey it, why would we believe that such a person does not have enough faith to be healed? As I said earlier, faith is only one factor in healing, and the fact that someone is not healed, especially at an advanced age or really at any age and any circumstance, is no proof of a lack of faith. This is illustrated by the Lazarus lessons. And this is perhaps the main point I'm trying to get across here today. You can't judge a person's faith by whether he or she is healed or not when they're prayed for. There are other examples of this in Scripture. The Lazaruses we read about were men of faith who became sick and died, but they will be raised up in the future in perfect health. Besides faith, God's will is another factor too often overlooked in the matter of healing. And it is not, it is not always God's will to heal immediately. God didn't heal the first Lazarus until after he had died. Of his sickness. He didn't heal the second Lazarus we read about either. He simply remained sick and died. In James 5, verse 14, James 5, verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and he, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This scripture that we just read has often been quoted and used to suggest that it is a promise that God will heal the sick. But it says the prayer of faith will save the sick. And so the premise is that the person will be healed only if he has, have, has quote, enough faith, whatever that is. And so that's the where the idea that we can claim God's promise to heal, and if you have enough faith, you will be healed. But is that what the Scripture says? 
First is the instruction that if someone is sick, he should call for the elders of the church. Now, this is not a command to call for a group of old people, as some have claimed, to anoint and pray for the sick. You will find no such example in the Bible. The word translated elders from the Bible, as I've explained in detail elsewhere or at other times, usually refers to an office, although in some contexts it could refer to an elderly person. Usually in the New Testament, the word is referring to an office in the church or in some cases among the Jews. It's often used that way in the Old Testament as well. But here it clearly refers to ministers giving authority, the given authority through their offices, elders to anoint and ask God to heal the sick. Now, in the example in Luke 9 and verse 1, it says that he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Notice who it was that Jesus gave power and authority to heal diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So these disciples were specifically given authority from God over physical illness where they could, through their word that was given power by the Holy Spirit, they could heal the sick. And there are many other examples in the scriptures of God working through his ministers, whether they're priests or prophets or ministers of the gospel in the New Testament to heal people of diseases or other infirmities, and in a few cases, even to raise the dead back to physical life. Uh, sometimes the point is made that it refers to elders, plural, but it does not mean it has to be a group of elders rather than a single minister involved in the anointing. It could be a plurality of ministers involved, depending on the circumstances, but there are many examples in the Bible of God working through a single minister to effect a healing. In verse 15, it says the prayer of faith will save the sick. But who is it doing the praying? In the context, it's the minister or ministers involved who pray for the healing of the sick person. Now, that doesn't exclude the person himself necessarily from praying. But neither does the context require that the person bring, being prayed for have any faith beyond having enough faith to request being anointed and prayed for by the ministry in the church. So in this case, if there's, if there's a lack of faith due to, or there's a, not a healing due to a lack of a, a prayer of faith, it would be the minister who's, who lacks the faith because he's the one doing the praying in the context of this scripture. And yet other scriptures show that faith is required on the part of any individual who is to be granted ultimate salvation. Without faith, we cannot be in God's kingdom. The prayer of faith that saves the sick, it says the prayer of faith would save the sick. The word save is the Greek word sozo. And this word can be used of healing, but it is more commonly used of spiritual salvation. 
where we read about salvation or being saved in the New Testament, it is this word usually or one of its cognates that is used in the Greek. The words uh, eomai and therapuo are the words most commonly used of physical healing, although sozo is used occasionally in this way. So it says the prayer of faith, sozo, or the prayer of faith will save the sick, the save being sozo, and it goes on to say the Lord will raise him up. The word translated raise is the Greek word egero, and it is in the future tense. The future tense. The word can refer to being raised up from being sick, or it can refer to being raised up from death, or in other ways. The same word is used of the dead being raised up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, and Matthew 17, verse 23, for example. So there's no promise here or anywhere else in the Bible that if you have sufficient faith, you will be healed immediately from a sickness if you pray for healing or if you are anointed and prayed for by a minister. The only thing it says is that if you are sick, you should exercise faith by calling for the ministry to anoint and pray for you and that through faith, you can expect to be raised up at some point in the future. But it doesn't say when. That time may be in this age. You may be healed the minute you're prayed for. I was healed of a problem I had years ago, even as the minister was praying for me, as I was being anointed. Sometimes that happens. Other times the person may be healed somewhat later, some other point in time before one dies, or it allows that you may not be healed at all in this age, but in a future age when you are resurrected from the dead. The Bible nowhere promises that if one has faith, he will never get sick in this life, nor that we will without fail be healed in this age of any sickness we may fall prey to in this lifetime if we simply have enough faith. In fact, again, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible promises that we will die. It promises that we will suffer tribulation. It promises that if we live lives of genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we will be resurrected to eternal life. And indeed, every person who has lived in this age and who dies will eventually be resurrected in some future resurrection. And that will be the ultimate healing. Because even if you're healed of some infirmity now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have other infirmities later on. If you're healed of some infirmity now, it doesn't mean you're not going to die because you will die. If you live long enough, eventually you're going to reach the point where you will, your body will run down and the corruption that is a part of our nature will take hold to the point that you cease to live unless Christ comes first. Paul said 
in uh, Acts 24, verse 15. Acts 24, verse 15, he said, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. He's speaking of uh, some Pharisees who were persecuting him. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Everyone who is physical, a physical human being and dies will be resurrected. And that means both the just and the unjust. And Paul said that was his hope. That's what his hope was in. Paul wrote elsewhere that he had suffered infirmity and he knew he wasn't going to be healed of that in his this lifetime because God told him that. His hope was in the resurrection. So when we ask for healing, we must accept God's will in the, ma in the matter of the time and the manner of our healing. Now, naturally, if someone is sick, unless he is a very abnormal person, he would want to be healed as soon as possible, preferably right away. But it may not be God's will to heal us right away as in the Lazarus examples. That's a lesson we can draw from these examples, an important lesson. We must learn to discern time and judgment. In Ecclesiastes 8, beginning with verse 5, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 5, it says, A wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Notice time and judgment go together. God judges, but there are is a time factor in the judging and in the executing of the judgment, whatever it might be. And it goes on to say in verse 6, for every matter there is a time and judgment, a time and a judgment. God may judge that he wants to heal you. If you are a person of faith, he does want to heal you and he will heal you if you are sick. He will heal you if you die but he's the one that decides the time and the manner in which that will be done. And we don't know when it's when our time will come to die, whether there are certain things that we can do to avoid accidents, to avoid sickness, to not take unnecessary risks, things we can do to help preserve our lives, but eventually the time will come when we run out of options. It says no one, verse 8, no one has power of the spirit to retain the spirit and no one has power in the day of death. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1, Ecclesiastes 3 beginning verse 1, it says to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. This is the element that is all too often left out in these discussions about healing. But there's a time for every purpose. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to heal. And God decides when that time is. When we're sick, we should call for anointing as God's word instructs and ask for healing in faith and we should expect to be healed. But we should also realize that God may or may not choose to intervene at a given time. 
and we need to be prepared to accept God's will in the matter without having our faith waver if we are not healed right away.